The Guardian. Sometimes people start fighting partly as a means to get access to resources, uh, whether it's um, to get access to territory or natural resources, or maybe it's just because um, joining the military is a paid job in, an, in a place in which there aren't very many paid jobs. Governments are the clients, the customers. Uh, they are the ones who are putting up money for this militarization that we see all around the world. We believe that including women, it's not about including women for more representation, it's about including women to transform those exact systems of exclusion. The women are excluded from peace processes and that is why there's continued to be unsustained conflict prevention. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Guardian's Global Development Podcast. My name is Hugh Muir. This month we're talking about conflict and resolution, and we're looking at the main drivers of conflict, as well as the role of women and the UN in peacekeeping. We also hope to look at how the Sustainable Development Goals may help us tackle the issue of conflict. So let's start off by listening to a report from Clara Nihunela, um, The Guardian's Global Development Assistant Editor, on the main drivers of conflict. There are many factors that can drive a population into conflict. Arguably, one of the main drivers is militarisation. Since the end of the Cold War, spending on arms has remained high, while the nature of conflict itself has evolved. In the last 20 years, there has been a change in the dynamics and trends in the ways the conflicts operate. We see less types of interstate conflicts uh, like what we used to see during the Cold War. My name is Gustavo de Carvalho, and I'm a senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa. So a lot of the types of conflicts that we see are internal within borders, which of course in terms of militarization that you have in different types of groups and also access to arms and to, to, to different sources of, of, of arms then becomes a particular challenge. We're not seeing that type of traditional type of engagement of military actors uh, like we used to see. The availability of weapons is one factor. Last week, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon told the Security Council that the widespread availability of small arms and light weapons, as well as their ammunition, was the common factor in over 250 conflicts around the globe in the last decade. This proliferation of weapons can also serve to normalise violence in societies. Ms. Laura Hammond, I am a reader and head of the Development Studies Department at SOAS. School of Oriental and African Studies in London. For instance, the Horn of Africa, the proliferation of small arms is everywhere. The fact that they exist not only on the battlefields and on the front lines, but as well in villages, in homes, um, leads to a whole kind of heightening of the role of violence within society generally, where violence becomes much more uh, a tool um, than would otherwise, I think, be the case. The normalization of violence is tied in also to the sidelining of women. Conflict tends to be driven by men, and some analysts have noted that leaders can exploit masculinity myths, such as the idea of the man as protector. Militarization tends to be a process of really stressing some aspects of masculinity in particular, um, and, and it, what tends to happen in militarized processes is that women's activity, their, their contributions, their activism, um, their roles in, well, in peace and in conflict tend to be sidelined. So, 
So militarization processes, almost by definition, tend to write women out of the picture and out of the story. Economics can also play a part, both by driving a population towards violence and in the aftermath, when poverty caused by conflict can lead vulnerable and destitute populations back towards violence again. Sometimes people start fighting partly to get access to territory or natural resources, or maybe it's just because um, joining the military is a paid job in, an, in a place in which there aren't very many paid jobs. So impoverishment comes about as a, as a result of conflict for civilians, and it is very much intrinsically tied to the experience of conflict. I think what we've seen, and especially in countries that have had some sorts of conflict and that going through the post-conflict settings, what we see is that the uh, economic recovery then becomes a very important issue. Uh, economic recovery then becomes that gives the population uh, uh, availability and access to resources that gives opportunities to be able to have a more productive uh, uh, engagement within society. What we see then is that the, the idea of creating sustainable conditions for peace then goes hand in hand to economic recovery. Notwithstanding the broad trends we have identified, economics, militarization and myths of masculinity, many conflicts are rooted in much more complex local dynamics. That's one of the difficulties I think of conflict studies is that one needs to take a very um, finely grained sort of localized approach towards understanding what are the nature of the grievances that are being expressed, what is the nature of the local economy that is perhaps driving people to be more likely to fight or not to fight, uh, and, and to, to base an assessment on that rather than to have a sort of grand overarching theories. It's very important when issues are being addressed around uh, identifying root causes of conflicts and what we need to do to uh, avoid a lapse or relapse into conflicts, that we need to be very cautious and to develop strategies that are, in, uh, that are enabling the population to actually become productive parts of society. Joining us on the phone now to discuss this is uh, Radhika Kumaraswamy, the former Under Secretary General at the UN, Maria Butler, Director of the Peace Women's Project, which is hosted by the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and Colin Archer, Secretary General of the International Peace Bureau. Welcome to all of you. You heard that report of the three drivers of conflict, militarization, economics, and the myths of masculinity. How would you rate each of them in terms of prioritization, in terms of weighting how much they actually add to the proliferation of conflict? Radhika, let me start with you. Well, of course, um, if you take a long-term view, all of this is very interconnected, but I notice that one driver is not mentioned, and that's ideology, um, uh, political, religious, national, ethnic, um, what I would call ideology. And in the old days, of course, uh, influenced by leftist thinking or Clinton's famous, it's the economy, uh, stupid, everybody believed it was the economy and that the ideologies were uh, dependent on whatever economic system you have. But we know, looking around the world, that uh, the way religions and uh, political ideologies proliferate, that ideologies ha have a momentum of their own. So my sense is that it is um, economics and political and social ideology that are the true drivers of conflict, and that both uh, militarization and masculinity are the byproducts of that. So that if you have, for example, a fascist nationalist uh, ideology with sort of um, state-oriented uh, capitalism, you will have a 
very aggressive military uh, with men uh, with very high levels of testosterone taking the lead. Uh, but if you have a more ideal um, sort of democratic, uh, pluralist, uh, sort of a Gandhian kind of ideology, you will find it to be uh, with no em less emphasis on the military and uh, with more sensitive men. In fact, it is argued that the man who assassinated Gandhi uh, actually was not a madman, but a man who believed uh, in the former kind of India, that India should look like that, aggressive and male, uh, and that Gandhi was really kind of a feminine uh, version, uh, and he found that uh, offensive. So, again, I think it's economics uh, and ideology uh, that uh, drive conflict uh, uh, and that uh, masculinity and um, as well as um, uh, militarization are byproducts of what that initial combination uh, puts together. Maria, let me bring you in there. So that's a, a radical list. She, she adds to our list of militarization, economics and the myths of masculinity ideology. Uh, how would you weight those various factors? Yes, I agree that we now are living in this period of a culture of violence where we are faced with uh, a spectrum of conflicts and, and what interlinks these systems of patriarchy with male dominance or economic exploit exploitation or militarism and ideology is the is the interconnected issue of power that's constituted and i think what what we're seeing as a women's peace organization is that women activists are living and surviving and challenging these structures of power today for example our partners in the middle east have faced in a way this distortion between choosing between extremist ideology and extremist military action and what they're saying and what we're saying is that there is still a voice for peaceful political resolution today, but that voice is being marginalized. And I think the power dynamics play out in a broad, in a broad spectrum, from violence in our homes, uh, where women are directly affected and targeted and their rights violated, and to on the street. And we see, that, we see this through, through many examples when women went to the streets in Egypt they were directly targeted, because not because they were powerless, but because the message they were bringing to challenge the power structures that were in place. So we just held a, a large convening of women activists, and they, they brought the demands to the table again that the majority, the peaceful majority, should not be silenced by the powerful minority. And there was innovative calls, for example, to adopt real feminist foreign policy by governments today and what that would mean would be challenging those exact structures of power so making human rights more valuable than economic gains so stopping arms trade where the where the violating country continues to perpetrate gender race violence so taking our words and actions into foreign policy was the demand of women activists Today. Colin Archer, the Secretary General of the International Peace Bureau, is that roughly the, uh, the assessment? Would that be your weighting too? Well, if I could say, I, I do support very much what the two previous speakers have said. My organization has historically focused primarily on disarmament and in the last 10 years, particularly on uh, military spending by governments, which is, if you like, the the root of the spending that gets made on armaments, the governments are the clients, the customers. Uh, they are the ones who are putting up money for this militarization that we see 
all around the world. I mean, it is extraordinary that <clears throat> 25 years after the end of the Cold War, we, as a global society, the total amount of money spent on the military sector is higher even than the highest peak of the Cold War period. Uh, and that has been driven by, of course, uh, many other many factors. For example, uh, the impact of 9/11, the whole transformation of American ideology regarding terrorism, global war on terrorism, and now increasingly uh, confrontation with Russia and China at the same time. The U.S. is now facing three three fronts, if if you like, and and most of the Western world is falling in behind that definition of where the threats are. But having said that, that for us, the, the question of armament and the huge amounts of money spent and in many ways wasted on the arms industry, I don't think it's necessarily the root cause. And when you ask to give a weighting to all of these different factors, I think that's almost an impossible task. But I, I do think that there's a couple of additional things that could be mentioned. One is um, the, the fact that we've neglected very often the, uh, the weight of history the, the sort of long shadow of colonial rule and the resentments that have grown up and have, and have in many ways been intensified by the globalization process. We've seen a, a reaction against globalization, against Western values, uh, and, and many um, uh, nationalist and ethnic assertions have, have come in their place. And that's combined with a sense of humiliation, which comes from having been bombed, occupied, uh, invaded, and so on by, by Western powers who claim to be democratic. And so that is, in a sense, a, a framing of what we could regard as struggle for geopolitical domination, which brings in this fight between the big powers as well as the smaller local powers. And, and I think you can't grasp what's going on in so many of these conflicts without getting a sense of the global picture. And, and I would just, just a small comment on the intro, I, I would somewhat contest the idea that most conflicts nowadays are intrastate. It's true that after the Cold War, that became the fashion for describing things. But just have a think about recent conflicts and see where there are outside powers and including superpowers, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Libya, Mali. They've all had, to some extent or other, major involvement from outside powers. So we're dealing in a world where there's a mixture of intrastate and interstate conflict. Well, of course, yeah, these are all very, very complex, interlinked issues that uh, we, we will try and um, explain them as best we can. Um, those are, thank you for that, and those are some of the drivers, perhaps, of conflict. So what to do about that? What might be some of the possible agents of change here? Let's go back to The Guardian's Klar Nihanela. Given the myriad causes, how can we tackle global conflict? Experts say one possible agent of change is an increased role for women in peace-building processes. The United Nations Resolution 1325 on Women and Peace and Security, which was passed in 2000, attempts to address this directly. Laura Hammond from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. 1325 is, is an, quite an amazing document in some ways because it tries to do so many different things. It's trying to, to really take on board the challenges of promoting peace uh, at all levels. It says we, we need to engage with women at all levels of society. Uh, we need to work towards greater um, em, you know, emphasis on peace-building processes, more greater inclusion of women in all aspects of 
civic and political life. Gustavo de Carvalho is from the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa. Resolution 1325 is very important because it brings the idea that women not only as victims but also as potential providers of solutions. I think the last 15 years we've seen an increased attention to the uh, role of women as a positive actor within issues of peace and security. Leima Gabawi is a Nobel Peace Prize laureate and Liberian peace activist, and she spoke to us at the Women's Power to Stop War conference in The Hague this April. What I would like to see in different conflict contexts, women, women being given the space to exert all of their energy in, in promoting peace, not just at the grassroots level, but also at the national international level sitting at the table and bringing some of those unique qualities to bear on the processes of peace building and i feel and strongly believe that once you do that um, we can make some of the biggest gains in, in building peace globally if activists both male and female have an important role to play in reducing conflict so too does the united nations in 2015, the United Nations' wider role will come under intense scrutiny during a series of major reviews, including an assessment of Resolution 1325 and the launch of Sustainable Development Goals to replace the Millennium Development Goals, which culminate this year. At this critical time, some are asking whether the UN itself needs to reform to become more effective in reducing conflict. Well, is it, is it the UN that needs to reform its own structures or the, the member states, and particularly the donor countries, who, as you say, are major arms manufacturers and who stand to benefit quite significantly economically from the manufacture and sale of weapons uh, to whatever customers will take them, um, who need to be much more committed to their own the rules that they set, the arms embargoes that they set, uh, the rules about who they can sell to are broken regularly. So um, you can't sign on to this kind of a commitment on one hand while at the same time continuing to carry on business as usual with the other. If we want really to, they want to promote changes on the ground and, 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 and the recommendations that all of those reviews will bring, but member states need to get a strong buy-in and to really be able to push that in terms of their own discussion. Some observers hope the drafting of sustainable development goals may drive change. Goal number 16 will recognize the importance of peace, good governance, justice and security, all elements which were absent from the MDGs. So in a way, including a goal that relates to issues of peace and security and to conflict issues helps in the way that the Sustainable Development Goals will be an assisting tool to planning processes at a national international level. So we'll be able to channel efforts, we'll be able to channel uh, resources to particular areas. But we also need to be cautious to not create too much emphasis on one tool that will resolve all of the problems. We still see, uh, we still need to be uh, are very aware of the fact that conflict dynamics are very specific to different to, to different situations, and the responses are generally going to be related to the specificities of the context that we operate in under. So, if we look first at the role of women uh, in uh, conflict, Radica. Can you first explain uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 and what that means for women in peace building and in conflict resolution? Well, you know, 
when the first time um, women ever came on the international stage uh, was in the 1920s, and they came on the platform, and it's Maria's organization actually, uh, of peace. Um, it was the Women for Peace movement and a demilitarization uh, movement. Um, and therefore this women and peace equation uh, has been there since the 1920s. They've been present at practically every um, international gathering and they inspired a lot of the women for peace movements uh, from Vietnam right up to the Security Council resolution. Now what 1325 did, as you know, this, uh, the Security Council really never dealt with human rights issues. Um, uh, Russia and China were firmly uh, objecting to that. But the wars in uh, Bosnia, Rwanda, uh, really were so horrific uh, that they changed uh, toward the end of the 1990s. Um, and in the famous resolution in 2000, they said human rights and humanitarian uh, violations um, are a threat to international peace and security. It was only in 2000, the UN was formed in 1947, that the Security Council accepted that human rights and humanitarian uh, aspects and then they moved on to three areas that they uh, began to look at more in depth. One of them women, the other children in armed conflict, and the other protection uh, of civilians. So the women uh, foot um, had this 1325 resolution, as well as a lot of resolutions on sexual violence and conflict. Women negotiators realized the Security Council being such a hard-nosed place that they would have to give up just the call for peace per se uh, and demilitarization which actually was the Faustian uh, co contract that we made with the council. Um, and now we may regret it, given the figures that were just mentioned, uh, that maybe we have to now think of going back. Uh, and my global study is, I think, going to emphasize the need that we just go back to peace per se. Um, and I think, uh, but a lot has been done with 1325, especially as an empowerer of groups at the local level, uh, to force governments uh, to do various uh, things. Uh, okay, let, let me talk to Maria about, about that. Maria, Maria, would it be fair to say that women have been empowered by uh, 1325 to play a more active and effective role in conflict resolution? I think uh, from our perspective, from Rope's perspective, women have been forces for change. They, they have been empowered, but they're using women, peace and security as a tool from conflict prevention at a local level to peace building. So it's how they're using it and how they're organizing, where we've seen the most impact in terms of implementation of the resolution is in the hands of civil society. And for example, last month, women organized in Nigeria to implement a process to prevent violence and unrest around the elections. They initiated, they led, and they implemented the Women's Situation Room in Nigeria. They received thousands of phone calls from civilians. They documented election violence. They prevented violence on the street and also at the election uh, ballot box. And this is the sort of work where we really see the impact, the local powerful work of of women's peace organizations. Yes, they use the tools of women's peace and security where they need them and when they need them with decision makers. But there's also been a clear frustration, and I think Radhika has heard this in her consultations on the global study, that women are and continue to be marginalized in those official processes, in decision-making processes. And this is what 1325 demanded of the international community, was to reprioritize gender, was to include women in peacemaking, 
And we have not seen that implemented. For example, we were involved in, in supporting Syrian women activists in the peace negotiations. They were not recognized or allowed at the table, although they continue civil society activities in the margins it's still not recognized as official. And what we hear as civil society organizations continue to be similar rhetoric than there was uh, years ago of that we will deal with that later. We will deal with women's rights and gender inclusion later. Right now, it's hard politics. And what, we're, what women activists are saying and what Wilf is saying, it's, it's now is about transforming the system and those powers, the systems of power that we discussed earlier is what we want to transform and we believe that including women it's not about including women for more representation it's about including women to transform those exact systems of exclusion the women are excluded from peace processes and that is why there's continued to be unsustained conflict prevention let me bring colin back in here colin moving on to conflict resolution in general it's clear that as we heard from the first package, that the nuances of peacekeeping are very much unique to the situation locally. Would you say that there's a need to concentrate on those local issues? A lot of peacemaking has to relate to the fact that the framework for conflict is often national, but uh, as we said earlier, that includes international players, but also regional players in the sense of parts of the country that may wish to, for example, secede or to contest power. So often you have this scenario of governments versus rebels. Uh, now, the rebels might be you know, occupying an enormous chunk of the country. That's hardly just local. We're not just talking about the village level here. So I think there has to be peacemaking initiatives, and that clearly must include women all the way from the village level right up to the national and global levels. That's what 1325 is about, and we've just heard very good examples of that. But I think that the place where the most important politics has to be done nowadays is national and subnational. And the difficulty is that, that women are not just excluded from peace negotiations, they're excluded from politics per se because of the patriarchal nature of those societies. And I think it, it would have been surprising if even 15 years on from 1325, one resolution and its, its associated forces had been able to transform societies that have been patriarchal for thousands of years. So it, I think it's a tool that has helped peacemaking and peace building and, and peacekeeping. Uh, but it's only one tool. And, and one of the, the points that I would make is that where are the resources for peacemaking processes? When you consider that there's $1.7 trillion being spent on military forces around the world, and, well, for example, to compare it with the aid budget, $135 billion for aid, and even less for, for the UN's work on peacekeeping. So we're talking about... Uh, a David and Goliath type of situation, if you like to take two male images, um, that, that peacemaking has to find ways to be effective, even though at this stage we still have far less resources, and most of those resources are devoted towards male-dominated institutions. Uh, th there is potential for the United Nations to, to play a far more effective role, but it's in the hands of member states, and in the current mood, if we look around the world, there's not much appetite for giving the United Nations that power. One can dream of a brilliant secretary general, a kind of new Doug Hammarskjöld, or hopefully a, a female version of that, uh, but even that person would find it difficult 
to resist the pressures by powerful nation states for, the, for their own interests to be taken into account. So I, I'm somewhat pessimistic, but I think that 1325 and the, the, the women's effort that, has, that that represents is our best hope. Of course, the UN's drafting an ambitious set of targets, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, to replace the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, Sustainable Development Goal 16 refers to the need to reduce all forms of violence. Uh, do we think this target will bring any effective re- results, or is it just more an expression of hope? Uh, Radhika? Well, let me just begin by saying uh, I agree that the UN at the moment, especially at the global level, looks ineffective. So... Uh, one of the recommendations of our study is going to be localization. Let's go local. Let's make the difference there. The UN was started with the whole notion of swords into plowshares. Now they're doing the opposite. $9 billion is the budget of uh, DPKO. But let's be very clear. Women have been absolutely key to peacemaking and peacebuilding. They may not have been at the formal table, but they create the atmosphere that makes it possible. As you know, in Liberia, in Bosnia, the women in black, mothers of the plaza, in Argentina, we can go on and on. And even now in Syria, at the local level, they are absolutely key um, to, uh, to peacemaking. Now, I agree, I mean, aiming against violence is, uh, you know, sort of, you know, like, you know, getting rid of motherhood, people will say, or whatever. But, you know, one has to have an aspiration to work toward, and this is one aspiration, And our argument is that not enough is done about prevention and also finding nonviolent means of protecting people. Because often the excuse used is we're going in to protect somebody. Uh, And, you know, when we mean about prevention is, you know, mediation, not only between combatants, you know, Dayton style, lock them all up in a room and throw away the key. We mean at the local level, at the community level, um, with women, everybody, a much more broader sense uh, of the political. Uh, so prevention means effective, proactive diplomacy by the UN and others at all levels of that society, uh, at the local, civil society actors, all stakeholders. Radhika, of course, the, the, the UN's role here is crucial. But some people um, point to the, the role of UN members, though, in, in the armaments trade and, and, and say that the, the problem is exacerbated by the, those UN members and the scale in which they, they, they continue to trade in arms. Yeah, but one can only fight them if one goes local. They're not going to be fought in the Security Council. They can only be forced through social movements. And one of the things that we are going to uh, advocate at the end of it's a very non-UN report. We're going to advocate massive funding to women peace builders at the local level and the creation of, of a global movement for peace that uh, uses the networks uh, that women have created uh, at the local level. Nobody is going to, no state has ever give, just stood up one day and got the political will to get rid of its arms. I mean, that's just gaga land. But they respond to social movements. So we okay, have to let's... create that social movement. Colin Archer, is the UN doing enough to, to stop its members from, uh, from doing the arms? Well, I think you have to ask whether the member states are doing enough. I mean, the UN is only an instrument that can operate within the framework established and the policies established by the member states. So yes, the problem is at the, at the level of, na- of nation states. Having said that, I think... I just I mean, want to say a huge one thing. debate about this, the. Excuse me, the, the, can I just inter- interrupt? Sorry? This is, this let, is, let him finish, is and I will bring you back in. Let him finish, and I'll bring you back in. Well, just going to say, I think uh, that the MDGs have a mixed record. Uh, there's a huge debate about whether they've been successful or not, and, and whether the things that have been achieved would have happened anyway without them. This is one, one of the 
one of the sort of counterfactuals. You never really know what would have happened if that initiative had not taken place. But it, it seems to have focused energy on a, on a whole range of key development targets. And uh, there's evidence to say that in the period of the MDGs, there has been some real progress. Now, the SDGs is, is, looks like being a much more complex and sophisticated set of goals, which will cover many more of the angles. It doesn't cover disarmament. It doesn't cover many of the peace dimensions that we would like to see. There's no mention of military spending, which, by the way, would be an enormous resource available in order to fund the SDGs. Nobody mentions that. That's an issue we've been campaigning on for a while, that if we move some of the money, we could, in fact, finance the SDGs. Um, but still, target uh, goal number 16 does talk about violence, reducing death rates, particularly against children, and it does mention illicit arms flows, but of course it doesn't mention the legal arms flows. Okay, I want to end with Maria Butler, but first I did say I would let Radhika come back in. No, it's a very quick point, which is that people constantly say the UN uh, is made up of member states. We, we keep pointing out that the UN Charter begins, we the people are tired of war, and the whole human rights movement and humanitarian part of the UN, which is often neglected by the media, comes out of that statement. So we have to pull that up again. You know, member states are very, have been very successfully thrilling the world that the UN is a member state organization, and it's important to remind them that it begins, we the people. Uh, uh, that's all I wanted to say. Okay, well, thank you for thank that. You. So, Maria, let me end with you. Uh, SDG 16, is this basically wishful thinking or do you think it's actually uh, can actually have a meaningful impact? I think the sustainable development goals, the impact and effectiveness of them will depend on, I think, two, two major things in the next uh, few months. One is how progressive member states are in September in the adoption of the sustainable development goals and civil society independent civil society has been key in pushing for progressive goals to include targets such as reducing military spending to ensure that women's meaningful participation is tracked across the goals. Uh, and the second factor really depends if and how this policy framework is implemented beyond New York. And, and that's a big challenge for member states, but also in the hands of, of civil society afterwards. Okay, well, can I thank all of our guests here, um, Radhika Kumaraswamy, the former Undersecretary General at the UN, Maria Butler, of Peace Woman Program Director at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and Colin Archer, the Secretary General of the International Peace Bureau. Thank you all for your contributions today. And it's worth remembering that in the coming months, we'll be covering the international debates and consultations around the Sustainable Development Goals, including key events such as the Financing Conference, ahead of the September meeting at the UN, to finalise the targets. Worth remembering too that all of our programmes are available on The Guardian's website, theguardian.com slash global hyphen development, and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all podcasting apps. But there we must end it for this week's Global Development Podcast. Uh, thank you to all of our guests and interviewees. My name's Hugh Muir. The producer was Carrie Stewart. Until next time, goodbye. This is the biggest story in the world. We will look back on these times and we will think, what on earth were we doing? From The Guardian. This is a story about people and this is a story about possibility. It's a story that's eluded us for decades. It's clearly the most important story that we could be thinking about. And yet you scan the daily newspapers and it's almost absent. 
a topic which The Guardian is now throwing itself wholeheartedly into. I'd seen how we'd done it on other things. Climate change. Bill's simple proposition and his urgently was, this stuff has to be kept in the ground. It cannot be dug up. So we're letting you in behind the scenes. Editorial meetings, bids for commissions. You'll hear what works as well as our mistakes. And along the way, you can judge how we do. Is there a new way to make the world care? That's the challenge. What can you do that will force them to sit up and pay attention? The biggest story in the world on The Guardian. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.